What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. Last December, I embarked on a journey that led me to London to walk through the life and ministry of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. And while I was traveling through the different parts of of England and London, I transitioned to go into Wales. And as I went into Wales, I encountered a church service that I will never forget. It was a very simple church service out in the back country of the country Wales. And we were meeting not in a church facility, not in a house, but in a barn. And there they had musicians and They were singing and playing Christmas carols, and they had uh, my friend, which you know him, uh, Brother Chase, preached the message as we were there together. He delivered a sermon from the book of Isaiah, ironically enough, and in the midst of this service, they called it a carol service, and when we think of the tradition Christmas caroling here in the Western world known as America, our mind of Christmas caroling gives the idea that we might walk through a, a town and go door to door. We might go into somebody's home. We might sing a few songs and be on our way. But the idea of Christmas caroling is actually more than that than we do here in America. You see, when I was in Wales, I was reminded a little bit of what it was like to sing Christmas carols. If if you remember last week, I talked about the concept of in the dark ages, the commoner like you and me would not have the privilege of understanding the songs that were sung or the sermons that were preached because they were in Latin. And so Christmas carols were a way in which God providentially and sovereignly revealed himself and his word to the commoners like you and me many years ago. And today, I share that to say this, that just as through the centuries, really going back almost to the Nicene Creed in the 300s AD of carolers singing about God, today we're reminded that Isaiah 2,700 years ago here in this final song and his prophecy is unleashing a Christmas carol unlike any Christmas carols from verse 4, 5, and 6. And this carol is all about the substitutionary atonement of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, about how Jesus came. And yes, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and he laid in a manger. Yes, he was there as a little infant but he lived a sinless life and he died a gruesome death as Isaiah depicts in chapter 53, verse four, five, and six. So the title of my message is simply Isaiah's Song of Christmas, part three. The other parts come from chapter 52, verses 13 and 15, and the second part is from the first three verses of our text today. But let me just brief you in on the context again. Remember, Isaiah is writing here. He's preaching by the divine Holy Spirit of God, and through its inspiration, God gave him the words through his Holy Spirit, and he's writing these words down. He's preaching these messages to Israel, but it is in this moment when Isaiah is writing 
about how Israel and this state in which they're living were in total rebellion against God. And as a result, God sent Assyria to come in and overtake the northern tribe, the northern tribes. And then a hundred years after that, he brought in Babylon to consume the southern kingdom, to leave Israel in utter destruction and judgment. But there will come a day Isaiah is looking into the binoculars and telescope of the future, seeing that there will come a day in verse number four when these Israelites as a whole are gonna realize that this was the Messiah that died on Calvary's cross, even though they rejected him even when he came in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. I want you to understand this, that from an end times perspective, this will be Israel's song later on in the future, that they're gonna sing in confession and repentance that Jesus is the Messiah. But I want you to understand this. Every lost person who's ever come to faith in Jesus Christ and believe that he is exactly who he, he claimed to be, the son of God, is gonna come to this passage and make it their repentant song of praise to God, re realizing that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, that being said, Here's the message in a nutshell that I want to leave you with today. If you leave with anything from these three verses, I want you to walk away with this thought. The atoning sacrifice of Christ gives to every believer eternal life. The atoning sacrifice of Christ gives to every believer eternal life. I love these three verses in this chapter. In fact, if I could... I would have to say today that these three verses are my favorite section of Isaiah's song of Christmas because it's reminding us that the purpose of Christ was not just to stay in that stable in Bethlehem, but it was to go to that cross and die. A, 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 he was innocent, but he died as a guilty person like you and me should have done. In theology, we give this idea of the vicarious penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. And may I put that into redneck English for you? That Jesus died in our place for our benefit. That's all it means. And here in these three verses, that's what's being delivered. And just food for thought, the modern Jewish theologian comes to this passage and says that these verses are about the nation of Israel. Well, I want to ask that modern Jewish theologian this question. How could Isaiah 53 be about the nation of Israel when it's talking about a specific person going to die on behalf of the nation of Israel? Cannot be Israel. In fact, as I shared with you last time, just to remind you, for the first 1,100 years after Jesus' death, the Jewish theologians affirmed that Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah. And we know that to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So what exactly is Isaiah teaching us about God's anointed Messiah from these three verses? Well, remember, the atoning sacrifice of Christ gives to every believer eternal life. All those who cry out to Jesus in faith will receive the benefits of the work of Christ on the cross. But I wanna draw your attention to verse four and talk with you this idea about Jesus being our substitute. Then I wanna transition to, chapter, to verse five and talk to this idea about how Jesus satisfied 
the Father. And then I want to draw into verse 6 and talk to you about the compassion and love that was demonstrated 2,000 years ago through Jesus Christ, God's anointed Messiah. Would you come with me through this text today? Look at verse number 4. Let's read this verse again. Listen carefully as I read aloud. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. First of all, I want you to consider the substitution of God's anointed Messiah. There's a correlation in this chapter about he and our. He and our. We and our. Isaiah is writing on behalf of his people, Israel. And the idea that one day Israel is going to realize that this was God's anointed Messiah, Jesus. In verse for the first half, it gives the idea that they understand that this was the one who would die on their behalf. And as I read the first part of verse 4, where it speaks about, surely he has borne our griefs. I think about how Christ was our grieving substitute. This concept of grief in our modern mind we, so, we associate grief with the idea of death. But grief is not always associated with death in of itself. In fact, somebody could do something that would offend you and it grieves you. Somebody that you know could, could do something and you don't approve of it and it could grieve you. Maybe your son or daughter does something and you do not approve and so it brings you grief and sorrow. The idea here is this. I think that, that what's taking place is Israel's going to realize that Jesus, the Messiah, would take their grief and put it on himself on the cross. And so God the Father is grieved over sinful humanity because sinful humanity has violated God's law. We have trespassed God's territory where we're not allowed to go to. And as a result, it has grieved the very heart of God. And so he sent his son to overcome our griefs. My friends, if you're here today and your sin does not grieve you, something is wrong. If telling a lie to somebody doesn't grieve you, something is wrong. If committing adultery with somebody doesn't grieve you, something is wrong. If hating somebody and murdering somebody doesn't grieve you, my friend, you need to get right with God. Today, my friends, we need to understand that just as future Israel will be totally grieved and consumed of the guilt over their sin, seeing Jesus high and lifted up on the cross should point us to our knees in total grief that Jesus would love us in such a way to give us the remedy for our sin. But then the verse, it goes on. It speaks about how he bore our griefs. It was on that cross where it was laid upon him. But then it says that he carried our sorrows. The idea of carry here in the, in the Hebrew Bible gives the idea that you carry a bunch of things and you put backpacks on, you carry luggages, and it becomes so burdensome to you. I mean, try walking through the airport, especially a large airport from point A to point B, and you got to carry all that luggage on your back. I mean, it's, it's, it's burdensome. It can be. The weight that Jesus carried on the cross was far more burdensome of the luggage you carry in the airport, by the way. Can you imagine every lost, every sin that has ever been committed on the shoulders of Jesus? That's heavy. And he did it with great sorrow. 
as God the Father looked into humanity. He was grieving over the fact and sorrowful over the fact that Israel, his chosen people, I mean, God, in a sense, reached his hand down and handpicked Abraham and said, Abraham, you're going to be the founder of Israel. The Messiah is going to come through your lineage. You're going to have uh, descendants as numerous as the stars and the sand on the seashore. And those people rejected God's anointed Messiah. And so that, of course, filled the heart of God with great sorrow. But just before you get too hard on the nation of Israel, let me remind you that that includes Gentiles too. That how Gentiles, just as Israel rejected, rejected Jesus in, in the days as a whole, the Roman culture and the Gentiles alike rejected Jesus as a whole when Jesus came. And every Jew or every Gentile who today rejects the message of the cross is grieving and sorrowing the very heart of God. And so in the first part of verse 4, we give this idea that Israel is going to come to the realization of exactly who Jesus was and what he did. But in the moment when Isaiah is writing, he's looking into the near future of Jesus coming and Israel as a nation saying, no, he's not our Messiah. Remember earlier in chapter 51 and in chapter 52, they thought that the Messiah was going to come like a king with royalty, with majesty, and with glory and splendor. But Jesus was born in a humble stable and lived a normal life. In fact, if you were to just to put him in a picture with, with a thousand other people, he would just look like a normal human being. But he came to live in unnormal life. And that is to die for our place. And so as a result, the idea that Israel here in verse number four, the last part, yet we did esteem, we valued him and lifted him up in a way that he should die the death that he deserves because he's a blasphemer in their mind. They're thinking that. They literally said, the phrase here is actually pretty incredible. Smitten of God. This is the word for Elohim in the Hebrew Bible. The idea that this is the supreme God of gods, that there is no other God that reaches this level. This is the God of the universe here. And so Isaiah is saying that the, the Messiah, Jesus, is going to be smitten by God? Well, it was part of God's plan. And it afflicted the son. It did. So the idea that Christ was our afflicting substitute. He, he went through affliction unlike we've ever seen. And it speaks of that in the text. They valued him as a blasphemer and they said he deserved to be smitten by God. But as a result of their charging, it was actually a part of God's plan from eternity past. Remember that passage, I think it's in Revelation, where it says that from the foundation of the world, Jesus was slain on the cross. It gives that idea that in eternity past, God had this amazing plan that, that considered his son to enter the world of humanity and there to die a sinner's death, even though he was sinless. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. This, from this text, this verse, is the substitution of God's anointed Messiah. Remember, this text is revealing to us the atoning sacrifice that Christ gives to every believer eternal life. I wonder, do you have that eternal life today? And if you do, are you thankful and grateful of it? May I draw your attention now to verse 5 as we transition. What else is Isaiah teaching us about God's anointed Messiah? Well, from verse 5, 
we see secondly, the satisfaction of God's anointed Messiah. Yes, Jesus came to be our substitute, to die for us on our behalf so that we could be beneficiaries of the work he did. But in the same process of Jesus dying our death, what he actually also did from the Father's perspective is he appeased and satisfied God's wrath and affirmed God's will and God's way. And that's what we see in verse 5. The idea that Christ was, was bruised to satisfy the Father's will. Notice the text. It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. This idea of wounded gives the idea that he was pierced. He was, he was stabbed. He was, he was hurt. And he did it for our transgressions. Now, the idea of transgress, it gives the idea of violating. Imagine a no trespassing sign. You cannot go into that territory. The word transgression means that somebody has violated that sign and they have entered into a region in which they were forbidden to go into. That consumes all of us, by the way. I have sinned against God. Whether it's in my mind or in the things I've said or the actions I've done. We're, we're all guilty. We are all guilty sinners. And so is Israel. They were guilty. All Gentiles were all guilty. Every last one of us. But it says he and our. He was wounded for our transgressions. The immediate context, of course, is about Israel. But we know this is applied to all believers who ever know Jesus. That to those who put their faith and trust in Christ. We understand that Jesus died on our behalf so that we could be forgiven from our transgressions. But then it goes on and says he was bruised. Would you say bruised with me? Bruised. Say it again. Bruised. One more time, please. Bruised. He was bruised for our iniquities. The word iniquity is a fancy word for sin, just like transgression. You can go to the store, whether it's Walmart, Food Line, whatever, Kroger, doesn't really matter. You go to the drink section and you can buy yourself a bottle of grape juice. And we drank some of that to honor our Lord momentarily ago for communion, our Lord's table. But in our modern mind, we, we actually don't give it any thought of the whole process that took place to get that juice on that shelf. But you know, in Isaiah's time, they actually had people that would stand in kind of a, an area kind of like this. It was kind of tilted down to where when they were taking their, I would hope, their clean feet and stepping on the grapes that the juice would spill out and it would roll down into the little hole and into the compartment where they could take them and put it in to the bowls or cups or whatever else they were using. The idea of bruised here carries the meaning that just as somebody is treading and stamping out on those grapes in the vineyard to produce grape juice, that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was crushed by the Father. It makes sense now when Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because it was in that moment that the Father bruised the Son and it was all a part of God's providential will so that he could redeem lost humanity like you and me. 
But the verse goes on to say, not just that he was wounded for our transgressions, and not just he was bruised for our iniquities, but check this out, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. Now the word chastisement gives the idea that you're gonna discipline somebody for correction so they can better live out the instructions that you gave them. And this, this is telling us that, that, that when Jesus was on the cross, he was disciplined by the Father so that he could be corrected. Even though Jesus did not need to be corrected because he was sinless and perfect, it's telling us this, that Jesus was disciplined in such a way so that he could take all those who are lost and lead them into the way of righteousness to see the Father. And I also understand that Christ was chastened to satisfy the Father's wrath. He was bruised to satisfy the will of God but he was also chastened. He went through that chastisement so that he could please the wrath of God. Have you ever read the book of Revelation? In that book, you see the wrath of God unfold. The bowls, the judgments, the seals, the trumpets, you see it unleashed. Have you ever read the book of Genesis, chapter six, seven, eight, and nine? You remember that big old flood that was spoken of by the days of Noah? I believe it was a literal account. Some people d disagree with me, but that's their issue. They'll take it up with God when they get to heaven, right? But nonetheless, we see that whatever it was, if it was a literal event like we believe it was, or, or whatever, it was, it, was a, it was a symbol of God's judgment upon the whole world, right? You ever read Genesis 19? God unleashed fire and brimstone from heaven to judge a group of people because of their gross immorality. We could go on and on about the judgment of God being poured out. But what's interesting is if you do not know Jesus, you will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. You will be like the inhabitants of Noah's day. And you will be like the unrepentant, Christ-rejecting people in the tribulation period who have shaken their fists up at God and said, God, I don't believe in you if you remain in your sin. The judgment of God is gonna be thundering down upon you. But my friends, there is another option. And if you know the other option, you should lift up your hands today and bow your knees and just praise God with a great hallelujah. Because 2,000 years ago, my friends, Jesus came so that he could die on the cross and so that the wrath of God could literally be poured out upon Jesus so that we don't have to experience the wrath of God. That's the gospel. That's why the gospel is such good news. Because listen, I cannot be a Pharisee to a Pharisees in such a way and keep the law to the extreme <coughs> to earn my way to God. I can't, and neither can you. But the last part of the verse, it says, <coughs> excuse me, with his stripes we are healed. Christ was not just bruised and chastened by the Father for his own purposes, but Christ was scourged to satisfy the Father's way. Notice what the text says. It says, and with or by his stripes, we are healed. This is the, the word for healed, Rapha. That we get this idea of Jehovah Rapha from. That he comes to cure those who are sick, to mend the brokenhearted, and to make somebody whole. It's pretty amazing. God's way is not like our way. God actually set up the Levitical law system so that the sacrifices of those lambs could, 
Yes, it was bloody. Yes, they had to build those altars. Yes, they had to, to, to do all the things necessary so that that animal could get there and, and the blood would gush out and they did all those things. And then, then you'd have the Holy of Holies where that high priest would go in once a year to atone for his sin and then on behalf of the people of Israel and sprinkle that blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And all that was picturing to us that one day God had a specific way, the only way so that mankind could be cured and that is through the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. It was spilt on the cross of Calvary, typifying the great mercy seat of Calvary, reminding us that if you want the, a, a great high priest on your behalf, you've got to have Jesus as your high priest. You don't have to go to a confessional booth today to have access to that high priest. You don't have to walk the aisle and talk to a pastor like me to have access to that high priest. You can just lift up your voice to God and say, God, I need you. And you have direct access to the Father through Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, as the book of Hebrews relays. He satisfied God's way. He satisfied God's wrath. He satisfied God's will. He is our satisfaction today. He is our substitution, my friends. The atoning sacrifice of Christ gives to every believer eternal life. But I wonder, do you have that eternal life today? Well, what else is Isaiah teaching us from this passage? Verse 6. Perhaps out of all the verses that you might have memorized or that ring a bell in Isaiah 53, it is this one. Because it is all our testimony. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned every one to our very own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, sin, and transgression of us all. So thirdly today, we see from this verse the compassion of God's anointed Messiah. All we like sheep have gone astray. Let's consider that thought. Christ loves the lost sheep who have strayed. And he preached about that, didn't he? Remember that sermon? When he said that there's a hundred sheep and, and he's speaking that, that story, that parable, and he says, if one sheep goes astray, wouldn't a good shepherd go after that lost sheep? My friend, isn't that what Jesus did when he came to die on the cross is to rescue the lost sheep so that they could be found by God's good grace? All we, notice, remember, surely he, has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. He was wounded for our sin. He was bruised for our sin. The chastisement of our peace was on him. And with his stripes, we are here. And now it says all we, we like sheep have gone astray. Sheep are interesting. Sheep, by the way, from what I am told, I am not an expert in animals. But what I have been told is that sheep are not the sharpest animals in the world. They're not the most brilliant ones. And in fact, they have what we call tunnel vision. You know what I'm talking about? Tunnel vision's like this. All I can see is what's, what's in that hole right there. And if, if there's something over here that's going to eat them like a wolf, they can't see it because they got tunnel vision. If, in fact, if they're following in a line, they're going to literally go exactly where the one in front of them goes. So if the one goes astray, it's going to lead them all astray. That's why sheep need a shepherd. 
Now listen, I'm not saying we are dumb. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying today. I'm not saying we are stupid. But what I am saying is we are like sheep from the fact that sometimes we have tunnel vision and we're following the pathway of sin and it leads us astray. And that is why we need a shepherd. As Peter said, he is, Christ is our shepherd and bishop of our very own souls. We need him. All we like sheep have gone astray. And Christ loves us when we even go astray. And notice, you got to keep this in context. Remember, this is specifically about the people of Israel because Israel, yes, they strayed. They said, God, we don't want to worship you. We want to worship Moloch. We want to take our babies and put them in, in the hands of that fire and sacrifice them to that God. We want to worship Baal. We want to worship all the Canaanite gods of the ancient Near Eastern religions. And they went astray. And so God chastised them and chastened them through Assyria and Babylon. But there was a remnant who believed and God ushered them back through Cyrus and Persia to come and establish their home again in Israel. And then they went astray again when they witnessed the Messiah. But my friends, before we get too judgy on those Israelites we need to be reminded that there was a time in my life when I saw Jesus for who he was and I was straying away in my sin. I was wallowing like a pig in the mud in my own sin. And before we get too heady and high-minded, we all were there. Christ loves the lost sheep of stray, but then check it out now. It says, we have turned everyone to his own way. Christ loves the lost sheep who have sinned. Now, Maybe you like to hike, maybe you don't, but just bear with me. I might have shared this story with you years ago, but myself and Brother Robbie and, and a couple other people, we went on this hike on the Appalachian Trail. We went from, from Catawba Mountain all the way to Daleville. How they talked me into that blows me away. I don't know. But we stayed in, in this shelter and we had to sleep beside somebody I did not know. And we heard God's little critters called mice running around. And anyways... Um, Robbie and I got ahead of, of Brother Dave and his son Josh. And we were trying to go a little faster for some reason. And what happened was we actually got off the trail. We were supposed to be on the very top of the cliff. And here we are looking up at the cliff, thinking, how in the world are we going to get back on this path? Well, by God's grace, he's an Eagle Scout and led the way. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But I say that to say this, that sometimes when we're walking in the trails of life, we get off path and we begin to take our own way and say, I can get back to God my own way. My friend, that's what culture says. You can get to God through Islam. You can get to God through Buddhism and Hinduism and all these other religions, but I'm here to tell you something. You cannot get to God that way. The only way to God is through his son, Jesus, as Jesus said. So either one, Jesus, as C.S. Lewis said, was a, a crazy lunatic or he was a liar, or he was Lord as he said he was. And I believe he was Lord as he said he was. So, the next time you stray and get off path, remember, the only way to get back on path is through the way of the shepherd, Jesus. But then the verse, here's the most encouraging part about this text. Notice earlier, 
Only two times God is mentioned by name in these three verses. The first one was Elohim. That is the, the word for God, the supreme God. The same similar word in Greek we get have theos, this supreme deity, God. But then in chapter 53, verse 6, it says, Lord. Would you say that with me? Lord. This is the word for Jehovah or Yahweh in the Old Testament, and it means he is the personal God of Israel. So check it out now. The supreme God earlier, who the Israelites who were in rebellion said, well, we're gonna leave this blasphemer to God. Now, the personal God that they supposedly believed in says, all right, in the same smiting that you think he's gonna be smitten by me, I'm gonna take your sin and I'm gonna put it on the shoulders of the one you rejected. He says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So that phrase means that the sins of Israel were hanging upon the shoulders of God's anointed Messiah on the cross. But I don't think it just ends there because I don't believe that Jesus just died for the sins of Israel. Remember what the New Testament says? It says that he was the propitiation, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Peter said that he's not willing that any should perish, but all come to him in repentance. My friends, what this passage is revealing to us, immediate context is, yes, he took the sins of Israel and placed it upon the shoulders of the Messiah, but I believe in the totality of the context of all of God's word, it's a reference that in this moment in history, Isaiah is seeing when Jesus is dying on the cross for the sins of the entire world. And that the, the, the gospel is open to anybody who calls on the name of Jesus. So I wonder, have you experienced the idea that Christ loves the lost sheep who have been saved by his amazing grace and mercy? If you're a believer today, you can experience all the great benefits of that atonement on the cross but you cannot experience those benefits until you put your faith and trust in Christ. So if you die and slip off into eternity without knowing Jesus as your savior, then my friend, you will experience the wrath of God for all eternity. Could you imagine living in the dark ages or the middle ages? It blows my mind. Imagine you were not privileged enough to be able to understand what the priest or the pastor was saying or what the saints were singing. So how would, you, how would you hear the gospel? You can't read, you can't write. You go to church, you don't understand what in the world that preacher's saying. He's speaking in Latin. Dea Gloria what? Don't know. Then you... Open up the songbook, and you're just like, what is this? I don't even know what it says. I don't even, it, it's all Greek to me. <laughs> How would you learn the Bible? The established church <laughs> wouldn't let you learn the Bible. Well, what's interesting, when you begin to study church history is you realize that many of the Christmas carols certainly do have songwriters who are named, but some of them don't have a songwriter. 
And I think the reason why they don't have a songwriter is because that songwriter was not a part of the established church. And perhaps they knew how to read. They had to know how to read if they could write a song. And they're understanding the Bible and they're trying to relay the story of Luke chapter 2 into a way that all the common people could understand. And they want it to be singable, so they're not going to use the melodies in the, in the, in the Roman Catholicism because those melodies, for, to be quite frank with you, back in they were just wacky and weird and not very singable unless you were some professional opera singer. And so a common person begins to write songs like God Rest You Merry Gentlemen, but also began to write a song called The First Noel. We have no idea who wrote that song. And in fact, the very first time it appeared in a written hymnal published was in the, the 1800s, 1823 to be exact. And I love that song because it reminds me that, that even at a time when illiteracy is at an all-time high, God always has a way to share his word with people. And so when you begin to realize that in the 1300s and 1400s and in the 1500s, God's main way of sharing his word with the common people like you and me who could not read, even though I know we can read, but back in the day we wouldn't be able to read, God uses what's called Christmas carolers to share the truth of the gospel. Different than our concept of Christmas caroling, these Christmas carolers would gather in homes and they would sing these songs of worship and praise to God about Easter, about Christmas, about other aspects of the church. And then they would gather in the streets and so there you are walking down the street. You can't read, you can't write, you don't understand what's going on in the church and you begin to hear the words of the first Noel for the very first time and you're taken back. You fall to your knees in tears because of what you just heard. It says, the first Noel, the angel did say, was to certain poor shepherds in fields as they lay, in fields where they lay, keeping their sheep on a cold winter's night that was so deep. Then entered in those wise men, three, full reverently upon their knee, and offered there in his presence their gold and myrrh and frankincense. Then let us all with one accord sing praises to our heavenly Lord that hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath wrought. Noel, 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 born is the king. Of Israel. Noel is the French term for Christmas. And when you begin to study deeper, it has Latin origins and gives the idea that Christ, the Messiah, has come. And as a result, all is well. The atoning sacrifice of Christ gives to every believer eternal life. This, my friends, is Isaiah's song of Christmas. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith.
Keep the faith.